going to let our choir go down today. I'm going to switch up a little bit here. Usually we kind of introduce the message, and then we let our children and their parents and any grandparents who might want to accompany them head back out for a message time. Looking at the time on the wall, I want to go ahead and allow our kids and Pastor J.D., uh, parents, grandparents, if you want to make your way out, uh, Pastor J.D. has a message that's specially geared towards you. Kids, parents, grandparents, any of you who'd like to join them back there, we're covering the same passage today. We do this now with our, our message time. We have the same passage of Scripture in here as they have back in, in their time together. We look at the book of Colossians. We're going to be studying through the rest of the book of Colossians. We do this together. We work on the sermon outline together. Pastor J.D., Pastor Stafford, and I work on the sermon outline. We come up with the sermon points, the emphasis. We just use little different illustrations in here as opposed to back there, just knowing the age of the kids, and also because we're really trying to empower parents to be the spiritual leaders for their children, and so we try to give them some things that they can take home and discuss with their kids. Now, we're going to be in the book of Colossians today. Why don't you take your Bible, turn there with me. We're continuing on in this sermon series entitled, What We Believe About Jesus Christ Matters. Now, I'm looking at the clock on the wall. I'm going to be respectful of your time, and it looks like I've got about 11 minutes to do the sermon to finish by uh, 11.30, so I might run just a few minutes over, but really what it means this morning is you've got to listen twice as fast, okay? So we're going to be reading out of Colossians chapter 2 today. Now, when I was growing up, I remember a game show that was called. It, it, it was actually kind of like a game show, but it was really a, a unique show. What any other show like it. And the game show was entitled To Tell the Truth. Any of you remember that old game show from years ago, To Tell the Truth? They did a remake of that a few years ago. It didn't catch on, but I don't know why. It was a neat show to watch. Because what they would do is they would march out a person along with two imposters. And those three people would come out, and one of those people had to tell absolutely the truth about themselves. They'd give a little bio about that person, and then the four panelists would have to ask questions of those three people, one of whom was the real person, and the other two who were the imposters, and they would have to ask questions of them to try to figure out who the real person was, and then guess, and uh, to show how old the show was, I was watching an episode of it last night, the prize money was this, that um, if, you, if you had one person vote for you if you're one of the imposters. If you had one person vote for you, you got $50. I tell you what, that was impressive then, wasn't it? And if you got all four people to vote for somebody else, if you were the real person, you won $500. Man, I tell you what, they were rolling in dough back then. But anyway, that game show, uh, to tell the truth, we kind of approach part of the Christian life almost like that. We think, well, I've got to guess what I'm supposed to be. I've got to guess what I'm supposed to look like. I try to ask questions to that, as to how I'm supposed to act. You know, is this the way that I'm supposed to act? Am I acting like an imposter? Am I, am I being real? Am I being fake? What, what is my life supposed to look like? The good thing is that God has already answered every single question you may pose about what your life in Christ is supposed to look like. Now that you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, he has given you a clear instruction and a clear guide of how your life is supposed to look and how you're supposed to act. Now we're going to read from chapter 2, verses 11 through 23, and again, I know the time restraints, I'll try to keep it brief, but this is what we're going to read from today, Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 11, and here's what it says. In him, in Christ, you were also circumcised 
with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You were buried with him in baptism. That's why we use that phrase when we do baptism quite often. You'll see the ministers do that. J.D. does this every time. You were buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God through who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He has made alive together with him, with Jesus, having forgiven you all trespasses. Having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why? As though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to the regulations of it? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Now, here's what we want to talk about today with the time that we have. We want to talk about being in Christ. Specifically, this is how this passage breaks down, two sections. First of all, it talks about our position in Christ, who we are in Christ. When we look at this passage, verses 11 through 15, talk about our position in Christ. Now that you have come to Christ, what does that mean? Now that you've come to Christ, who are you? Who am I in Christ? Talks about our position of Christ. Secondly, this passage from verse 16 down through 23 talks about our posture in Christ. Now, how am I supposed to act? How am I supposed to hold myself? How am I supposed to move? How am I supposed to serve now that I have come to Christ? Our position in Christ, who I am in Christ, and then how I'm supposed to act, what I'm supposed to do in Christ. This is not an exhaustive list. It doesn't include everything, but it includes some clear direction for us. Our position in Christ, first of all. Three things, our position in Christ. And I'll try to hit these pretty quick. Our position in Christ emphasizes this in verses 11 and 12. In verses 11 and 12, as a person is coming to Christ, Christ is already changing his or her heart. Listen again here in verse 11, and it says, in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You were buried with him in baptism in which you were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, there is an image, a metaphor that's used here, and it's something that the people in that day would have known well. It's the image, it's the metaphor of circumcision. Now, if you're not familiar with what circumcision is, 
Google it. I'm not going to explain it in detail to you today, but it was part of the covenant, the Old Testament covenant, that showed that they continued in the promise of the Lord. And with this circumcision, it was a physical thing that occurred. But here's what the Apostle Paul, as he writes to the church in Colossae, he's he says, he says, it's not the physical circumcision, it's not the act of cutting yourself that shows that you belong to the Lord. It's actually something else that shows that you belong to Christ. It is a physical or it is a spiritual cutting away of the hardness of your heart. That circumcision of the flesh doesn't save anybody. That act which is physical, doesn't save anybody. It is the spiritual surrender. It is the spiritual softening of our heart and opening ourselves to the moving of God's spirit that actually is the thing that saves us. And I can't even begin that on my own. Here's the problem. When we speak of this specific thing, we're usually speaking of something we've done. Well, when I was a seven-year-old, I made a decision that I needed to come to faith in Christ and I needed to place my faith in him and ask him to be my savior and Lord and invite Jesus into my heart. Do you know how many times we use the word I in that? Here's the problem when we talk about this topic of salvation, our position in Christ. I did nothing to receive this position. Even before I accepted the gift, he was already working in me to draw me closer to him. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father unless the Father first is drawing him. It means that from the very beginning of salvation to the very end of salvation, the beginning of my position in Christ to the end of my position in Christ, the beginning of my existence to the very end of all time, it is all God, it is all him, it is not me. Now listen, in the church today, when we begin to add in things like, yes, I trusted in Jesus as my Savior and I tried to live a good life and I'm a good person. Anything in addition to Christ is false and wrong. My position as a follower of Christ has been initiated by Christ. While I was still sinner, Christ died for me. Was secured by Christ. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, or else we'd be able to boast about it. It's important for us to understand our position in Christ. As a person is coming to Christ, Christ is already changing our heart. Secondly, here in this passage, in verses 13 and 14, it says, a person comes to Christ, as they come to Christ, Christ turns death into real life death into real life. Now, I have a definition of, scientific definition of life here, but I'm not going to read it to you. Save a little time. Difference between death and inanimation is very specific, though. Now, the word that it's used here is a person comes to Christ, Christ turns death into life. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. There's something that is implied by the word dead that often we overlook. This communion cover 
is not dead. This cup is not dead. This watch is not dead. Why aren't they dead? I mean, they're not alive. Why aren't they dead? Because they've never had life in the first place. And when the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Colossae, he says, hey, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That spark of life that God placed in you, that spiritual life which was born in you as you were conceived, yes, you had, you had the molding and the shaping of God. You were alive, but that first time you were born with a sin nature, but that first time you consciously chose, you made the decision to step away from God's will. You died in your trespasses and sins. Now listen, without going too far in detail, this is why we say that a young child who might pass away before they reach that age where they understand what they're doing, where they commit a sin that's an offense, an affront against a holy God. That's why we believe that they're saved, they're still secure because they haven't reached that age of accountability where they're accountable for their own decisions. But once I reach that age where I am accountable for making my own choices and I make a decision to disobey what I know is a direct command from the Lord, it is in that moment that I die. But as I come to Christ, as I place my faith and trust in Christ, I am made alive. Three things about our position in Christ. As a person is coming to Christ, Christ is changing his or her heart. As a person comes to Christ, Christ turns death into real life. And as a person comes to Christ, Christ disarms the attack of Satan regarding our sin. Verse 16, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. I'll just say this is one of the most effective tactics of the enemy against a believer. He wants to convince you, Satan wants to convince you, you are guilty. And he tries to use guilt to steer you away from who you are in Christ. Let's be very careful here. I am guilty. But God doesn't use guilt to steer me. He uses conviction to steer me. There's a difference. Guilt is something that keeps me from doing something. Conviction is something that convinces me to do something else. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit came to convict us of our sin, but to steer us to do something better, to steer us to a new life in Christ, to steer us to accomplishing more. Here's what Satan wants you to believe. He wants you to believe that you are a failure. He wants you to believe that you are worthless. He wants you to believe that there is nothing special about you, that you have gone so far that God can't forgive you. And the truth is there is only one sin that God can't forgive, only one. And that one sin is this, that I don't believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. That's the only sin that Scripture says God can't forgive. So you, as a believer, you, God has already removed the attack of Satan against you. 
Our position in Christ is secured. I've come to Christ. I believe in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Because my position in Christ is secured, the attack of the enemy no longer holds sway on me. Our position in Christ, I'd like to take more time to talk about it, but we want to talk about this, our posture in Christ. Because this is who I am in Christ. Because this is who I am as a believer. Here's how I'm supposed to respond as a believer. Verse 16 says, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Now, there are plenty of people when this topic, this word comes up, who like to throw around some scripture as if they understand what this passage is talking about, judging. And the most frequently quoted passage of scripture is Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Don't judge or else you're going to be judged. Judge not lest you be judged. As if that is the end of the discussion. The problem is that over in John chapter 7, verse 24, it says, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with a righteous judgment. We are supposed to judge. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet it certainly did not mean people with the sexually immoral people of the world outside the church or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters since then you'd have to leave the world but now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone who says they're a brother in Christ who's sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner not even to eat with such people for what do I have to do with judging those outside the church but aren't we supposed to hold a Standard, aren't we supposed to judge those inside the church? Those who are outside the church, God judges. But inside the church, put away yourselves from the evil person. Now, why is this passage important? Well, here's the thing. When we're talking here in this passage, it says, let no one judge you in food or in drink regarding a festival or new moons or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. When I came to faith in Christ, when I trusted Christ as my Lord and Savior, he's the one who's the judge and the jury. But there's also an expectation of how my life is supposed to be lived from here. And here's the thing. If Scripture speaks absolutely clearly on this, if Scripture speaks on this, we're supposed to hold each other accountable. If scripture says sex outside of marriage is wrong, we're supposed to say to our brothers and sisters in Christ, hey, that relationship that you're entering into, it's wrong. If scripture says a person is not supposed to be drunk with wine, well, we need to be able to say to brothers and sisters in Christ, hey, God's word says clearly we're not supposed to be drunk with wine. If scripture speaks and says, Thou shalt not lie. We're supposed to be able to say to each other, why do you have a problem telling me the truth? 
where Scripture speaks clearly, we're supposed to hold a standard and expectation. Here's the problem. Sometimes in church, we take our ideas and our thoughts of what we think Scripture might say or what tradition tells us, and we impose it upon people as if it's a standard by which they're supposed to live. Our posture in Christ says this about us. It says that we are not supposed to allow anyone to determine our righteousness by their ritual. If it's not something that's specifically, expressly forbidden in Scripture, then I need to at least be a little flexible there. Pastor, what do you mean? Well, how about this? Does it say anywhere in Scripture that I'm supposed to wear a coat and tie in church? Now, your tradition and your experience may tell you that you are supposed to dress up as you come to church great. You want to give your best to the Lord? Wonderful. Does the Bible say that I'm supposed to wear a coat and tie to church? No, because they didn't even have them then. Some people take that to mean I'm supposed to bring, bring my best spiritually to church. Now, are we supposed to get an argument over that? No, that's the point. Those are things that are kind of a gray area. Is it okay for me to wear a hat in church? Well, some people would say that's terrible impoliteness. The issue is that Scripture doesn't say that. It does have a specific saying about how men aren't supposed to have their head covered uh, while they're praying, which, by the way, mine's not. (laughs) Sorry for some of you guys. It also says that, ladies, you're supposed to have yours covered as you pray. Thankfully, most of you don't look like this. Because we also understand that that covering is a natural covering that the Lord has given us. Hey, here's the point. We're not supposed to be in this place where we're judging each other based on ritual or tradition. If God's word doesn't expressly, explicitly give this command, let's try to give a little understanding to each other. That's just what the Lord was talking about through Paul as he wrote to the church in Rome in Romans chapter 14. One person holds one day more important than another day. Another person takes all seven days out of the week and says they're all special. Who's right? Well, they're both right. Let's show a little understanding and respect to each other. I don't want to get bogged down here because there's two more things. Briefly, I want to say. All right, verse 18. Let no one cheat you of your reward. Let no one cheat you of your reward. Let no one cheat you of your reward. Taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind, not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Let no one steal the reward of a relationship with Christ. Let no one steal your reward cheat you of your reward. But what is our reward? What is our reward? Now, before you say, well, it's heaven. I mean, that is a reward. I don't think that's the one that it's talking about here. Primarily because no one can steal heaven from you. He who began a good work in you, he's faithful to complete it. 
Nobody can steal heaven from you. Nobody can steal your eternal destination from you. Nobody can steal that reward. What can they steal? They can steal the joy of a relationship with the one that we're going to spend eternity with. They could steal the joy of your relationship with Christ. What does that mean? See if I can explain. Okay. Um, What if we were talking about a marriage relationship? What if we were talking about a marriage relationship right now? Um, If we boiled the marriage relationship down to all the things that we have to do, all the things that we have to do in a marriage relationship, and then we were to write up some kind of description, maybe a job posting or something like that about all the things you have to do in marriage, it might sound something like this. Position available. Someone with cleaning skills, especially cleaning toilets, kitchen sink. Someone who cooks exceptionally well. Mandatory. Babysitting may be required, maybe not. Must hold full-time employment in addition to this position. Must be intimate on occasion. Must be a football fan, preferably Virginia Tech. Must be a baseball fan, absolutely only Boston Red Sox need apply. Other duties as assigned. Sounds good, right? Romantic. Look, all the guys are like, yeah, what's wrong with that? Sounds good. When we boil the Christian life down to all the things we're supposed to do, it sounds just like that. Hey, don't lie, don't steal, don't touch, don't take, don't go, don't look. Do this, do that, give this, give that. And pretty soon, that which is supposed to be a relationship becomes nothing more than a routine. Because of my position in Christ, because of who I am in Christ, here's what the Lord wants from me. He wants me to keep others from stealing the joy of a relationship. I get to walk with God Almighty every day. I get to wake up in the morning and I get to open his book and listen to his voice as he speaks to me by his Holy Spirit. I get to see the sunrise that he gave me that day. I get to meet people throughout the course of my day who he's created in his image and that I can see the spark of the picture of God in their life. I get to be in this relationship with Christ. I don't have to be, but I get to be. Let no one steal the joy of your relationship with Jesus ever again. That's what he wants for you, my friend. Because of who I am in Jesus Christ, he wants me to make sure nobody steals the reward of a relationship. It's one last thing, but I'm going to leave it off because I just need to stop here. Who are you in Christ? This is who you are. You are a person who has a new heart circumcised spiritually by the hand of Christ. You are someone who was dead but is now alive in Jesus. You are someone whose sin has been completely forgiven in Jesus. Let no one determine your spiritual righteousness 
based on their ritual. And let no one steal the joy of this relationship with God Almighty that he's offered to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time in worship today. Thank you that we get to share together. We get to celebrate the gift of life that you've given us, that we got to share together with these families whose young ones were baptized, who made the decision to follow you. Do they understand it all? No. But they understand enough. They know. They have a need, and the only one who can meet that need is Jesus Christ. Lord, you don't expect us to have all the answers before you come, we come to you. We just need to know where the answers are found. And Lord, as we come to you, we realize that you are drawing us even before we heard the call. We recognize, Lord, that I have a new heart because your hand has reached out to me. I recognize, Lord, that my sin has been forgiven because of you. And I don't need to worry about the attack of the adversary anymore. And Lord, in those moments where I get too focused on ritual, routine, rather than relationship, I pray that you would remind me that you don't want anybody to steal my reward. The reward of a walk, a relationship with you. And the joy that can be found there. I offer this prayer to you today in Jesus' name. Let's stand again.